Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with the Digital Director of Patients for Affordable Drugs, Sam Reed. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. I'm so glad we got in contact. It was actually Sneha Dave who connected us. And Sam's on the show not only because she works with patients and lobbying to help patients get more affordable care, but also because you also live with invisible illness. So you're going to tell us all about it. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease uh, almost exactly 10 years ago now. Uh, Happy anniversary. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was in February of 2010, mm. and I was 18 at the time. Uh, and so I, when I say 18 at the time, I had literally just turned 18. It was like three days after my birthday, uh, prime time for a life-altering diagnosis. Yeah, but, like uh, happy birthday, you can buy porn and you have crowns. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it was wonderful. Uh, and so I, it had been obviously, as anyone I think who's gone through the diagnostic process knows, uh, it had been a long time coming. Uh, luckily for me, not as long as some other folks, I know that there's unfortunately no good data on exactly how long it takes people to get diagnosed, but uh, I've heard anecdotally anything from, you know, right away to several years. Mm. I was right about in the year range. So it's uh, pretty quick, actually, relatively speaking. Yeah, yeah. And that was, I would say, a year from when I decided personally that things were very bad. Mm. Uh, I had been living my whole life with kind of a weakened immune system and what my family uh, referred to as a bad stomach. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there were many bad stomachs in our families. So no one really thought it was that serious. Um, No one 
was overly concerned. And so I kind of took their cue and was also not overly concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I had that really weak immune system along with the stomach problems. Um, I had pneumonia nine times before I was nine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So I was always a little bit of a medical mystery. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I could go into 8 billion different stories of weird ailments that I had that no one could figure out. Uh, But it was when I was uh, 17 or so that I really put the hammer down with my family and was like, we need to go to a doctor. We need to figure something out Uh, because I was drastically dropping weight. I lost like 40 pounds my senior year of high school. Oh, wow. Uh, And I was already, you know, pretty small at that time. And so it was concerning. Of course, when you're 17, 18 years old and you lose a bunch of weight, everyone's like, great prom diet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you look so wonderful. Which yeah, you we, look great. Like, let's just put this out there. We all just need to stop complimenting people on losing weight. Absolutely. Just no I, more. Especially because as someone with Crohn's, I tend to be a little heavier when I'm healthier. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we're I, all heavier when we're healthier. Right. Like, I'm like, my body is loving food right now. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not stressed and having like inflammatory responses when you're well. Like you just yes. sort of like your body is like, hey, I'm happy. We're good here. Yes, absolutely. And so I just, uh, I think that that was when I really, I was... They always, I always think of it in terms of quality of life. And at that point, I really didn't have any quality of life. Uh, mm-hmm. I was skipping social events because I was worried about getting sick. I was pretty much living on saltines and ginger ale. Yeah. Uh, and so, and my family knows how much I love food. So they knew how concerning that was. So I mm-hmm. finally kind of talked my parents into taking me to a doctor and I got referred to a GI and that was when I was diagnosed with Crohn's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for anyone who doesn't know, Crohn's disease is uh, under the umbrella of inflammatory bowel diseases. Uh, it affects me personally and my terminal ileum. Uh, but as they love to say, it can affect anywhere from your mouth to your anus. And it is, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not a fun tagline. Uh, and so it is inflammation in your GI tract, but it can also have a lot of uh, not so fun extra intestinal symptoms, which I've unfortunately had, mm. um, including really dry eyes, uh, joint pain, mm. um, you know, everything under the sun. Fatigue is really horrific uh, for a lot of folks yeah. with Crohn's, and something that I think the medical field has not really figured out yet is why forty uh, percent of Crohn's patients who are in remission still report like really debilitating fatigue. And so it is uh, a kind of a game changer. And unfortunately, when I was 18, I was, you know, young and a little reckless and didn't take it as seriously as I needed to. And I think that that is what kind of drove me into advocacy because when you're at, when you're diagnosed at that awkward cusp that I was diagnosed, you don't have, I think I, I have since as an adult met folks who were diagnosed as children Mm -hmm. and they had these really great support systems and care teams of pediatric doctors. Um, And I unfortunately went directly into adult care. And so my parents didn't know anything about Crohn's disease. My doctors, I don't think did a very good job at the time explaining to us what we should expect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wanted to go to college and not think about it. (laughs) So so that is kind of my diagnosis journey. I got lucky. I got lucky that uh, those first couple years in college, uh, it was really well controlled on a 
really uh, not too intensive drug regimen and I mm. got to not think about it a lot. Yes. Uh, and then things have obviously since then taken a bit of a turn. Well, you mentioned something interesting and I'm wondering about this concept of remission because, you know, I see a lot of these chronic conditions, they're lifelong management. You know, you, you're going to have to change your lifestyle in some way for the rest of your life in order to manage potential symptoms from flaring. And I'm wondering when you say in remission, does that mean somebody who's like on a drug regimen that's working for them is considered to be in remission? But like if you eat the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing that you could flare back up again? Yes. And I, so because of what you just mentioned, I actually have a really tricky relationship with the word remission yeah. um, because I have over the years been in remission at various points and mm. it rarely feels like it. Um, right. I, I mean, so because of kind of the way Crohn's ravages your body when it's in a flare, mm. uh, you have lingering issues. I have some dysmotility issues that linger. Um, I am one of the lucky folks who has IBS and Crohn's. Oh, wow. Um, so I rarely, I would say that I rarely feel like I'm what you would picture as remission. Mm. Um, and like I said, so many of us still struggle uh, with fatigue in remission. Mm. And so one of the big lifestyle changes I've had to make is really learning how to pace myself. Uh, I never pictured myself at I'm 28 now and I never pictured myself being someone who's like, okay, I have plans Tuesday night and I have plans Saturday night. That's That's it. it. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I can do. Don't Uh, worry. That happens in your thirties anyway. (laughs) You're not too far off. (laughs) That's what my doctors keep telling me. They're like, your friends will catch up. Uh, Well, you end up going from FOMO to JOMO. Oh yes. And (laughs) I truly think the hardest part with that I am an introvert. I'm, I like to refer to myself as an extroverted introvert um, because I think a lot of people wouldn't think I'm an introvert upon meeting mm. me. Uh, but I do really recharge being at home. Um, and I think part of that is my personality and part of that is the fatigue. Uh, yeah. But that being said, I, you know, have, I have a lot of hobbies that make it so that I really enjoy my time at home. Mm. Um, but there is always that struggle of... Uh, seeing your peers, especially when you're in your twenties, it was, it's getting easier now, but it was a lot harder when I was like 24, 25, seeing your friends all going out all the time and they don't necessarily understand why you can't. Mm. Um, and fatigue is this very nebulous symptom and pacing yourself is this thing that's very hard to explain to healthy people. And so my gosh, yeah. yeah, so I'm always, uh, I've gotten much better over the years in kind of protecting those boundaries and not saying yes to too many things. Yeah, absolutely. So what steps have you taken specifically up to this point to get to a place where you feel like you're a little more in control? Have you had surgeries? Have you been taking medications? What does that look like for you? Yeah. So knock on wood, uh, I have not had any surgeries. Uh, I'm knocking that noggin. (laughs) And so I, although I do know that I think it's uh, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation has put out a statistic that one in four patients with Crohn's will need at least one surgery in their lifetime. Um, And when you're dealing with Crohn's, it's usually pretty major surgeries. I mean, I have friends who've had, you know, their whole small intestine removed. Uh, You mentioned Sneha. I know she's had uh, some pretty- She's got a J pouch. Yeah, she's had some pretty aggressive surgeries over the yeah. years. Um, and they, and that, one other person I've spoken to who has Crohn's um, actually has a, an ostomy bag. So, you know, yeah. it's like all different things. 
Oh, absolutely. And that's what I always try to tell people too, is that uh, everyone's, I, people get this with every illness, but every once in a while I'll have someone be like, oh, my high school soccer coach had Crohn's and she was fine. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> thanks for that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Super helpful to me. Uh, but I always try to tell people that every patient is different and yeah. every experience with Crohn's is different. And even for me, like day to day or depending on what year you meet me or what point in my life you meet me, things are very different. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's always best to just let people tell you what they need and believe them. Uh, but Yes. <laughs> Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> but I think that for me, uh, it wasn't surgery. But so in 20, I mentioned I was diagnosed in 2010 and in late 2015 was the first time I had... I mean, up in those five years, I had had like small flares, things that would last a week or two, or I would have what I called bad days, mm. um, but nothing major, nothing that I had to like change my lifestyle. Um, and then it was in t- late 2015, I was hospitalized for mm. a Crohn's flare and things kind of just progressively went downhill from there. Uh, I got to a point where I couldn't really eat anything. Um, mm. Like it was like, no matter what I tried, even the things that I thought were my safe foods weren't working. Um, and with not being able to eat comes a lot of other no issues. Nutrition and yeah. Exactly. And I was at a point in early 2016 where I could like barely walk up a flight of stairs. Mm. I was so weak. Um, I remember trying to go into work one day uh, thinking it would be okay. And then a few hours in having to go home because I was in so much pain that I passed out in an Uber. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And so that year was really, uh, probably the hardest year of my life. Um, Mm. it was, I was sick for that whole year essentially. And what has worked for me since then um, has gotten me to a place where I'm able to work and live and go to yoga and travel and do things like that. Um, I started on Intivio, uh, which is a biologic infusion in March of 2016. Um, And you're probably thinking, well, if you started in March, why were you sick for that whole year? Uh, It takes time, people. (laughs) Yes. The fun thing about biologics is uh, it can take like six to nine months for it to really kick in. Uh, And so now, luckily, I've been on that for four years now. Um, Mm. And knock on wood, I have not built up antibodies yet. Uh, So I can- And this is a common thing that happens is that we patients develop tolerances to various medications. Yes. So over time, you're going to have to continually monitor where you're at and potentially change things up. Yeah. So Intivio has worked really well for me. I wouldn't say I'm like operating at a hundred percent, but I'm mm. doing so much better than I was. But that is kind of the tricky thing about biologics is patients will at some point build up antibodies to the drug and then they can't take it anymore. Mm. And so that's why it's this very delicate treatment dance of like, what should I be on? And then that's why it's so important that we have uh, new options coming out all the time because at some point I will no longer be able to take Antivio and I will have to switch to something else. Well, and that's Um, the important thing for people to understand that like the research is never done, you know, that like there could be all the funding behind the research, but that doesn't mean we're done with it. We have to keep pushing. Absolutely. And that's what I always uh, tell people. I think biologics are a tricky thing for people to wrap their head around because Mm -hmm. people are used to pills and generics and things like that. Um, And 
biologics really are their own animal. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. And can have really serious side effects too, if it's something that doesn't work for you, as can any medication. Yes. And I uh, have been really lucky with Antivio. It is one of the safer biologics. Mm. Um, So that's been really great for me. Um, But it does mean that once a month I go uh, to a infusion center Mm. uh, just across the state line in Maryland. Uh, I'm based in DC. uh, And I get an hour long infusion of Intivio. um, And I'm very lucky that my workplace is uh, very accommodating of all of my appointments and things because uh, in 2017, I had an adverse reaction to the Intivio, which is like you mentioned, very common in Mm. biologics. Um, And we discovered that I'm uh, my body maybe doesn't tolerate it as well as I'd like it to. Uh, I went into anaphylaxis uh, wow. at the infusion center. Luckily, they, the nurses are fantastic, got it under control really fast. But now because of that, I have to take uh, a pretty high dose of IV Benadryl before every infusion. Which probably knocks uh, you out too. It does. It makes the day a wash. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And this is important for people to also understand. It's like, this is beyond the holiday days that you would be allotted. This is like a medical necessity once a month that you need a whole day because otherwise you just can't function. Right. And sometimes I do uh, feel guilty about it because it is just a whole day that I'm not at work. I'm not doing anything productive. I am sleeping and I am uh, dealing with what me and some of my other uh, friends with infusions call the infusion hangover. Um, And (laughs) and so I I kind of have to remind myself that that is in and of itself productive, you know, what my body needs me to do. I know. That's a really tough one to get your head around. I'm glad that you brought that up because I think it is really hard to be okay with not really being terribly functional some days, you know, that you have to kind of give into it because there's really no other way around it, but it's for the better good of your body in the long term. Right. And I mean, we're kind of living in this time right now where everyone has like a side hustle or like yeah. something, you know, everyone's doing work 80 hours a week. Um, and mm-hmm. so it is so easy to fall into that mindset that you are only as valuable as the work you're able to, you know, put out. Absolutely. Um, And it has been a long journey uh, for me of kind of reprogramming my brain to understand that like when I'm able to do things, uh, that is valuable. And when I'm not able to do things, that is also valuable because it is what my body needs. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the diagnosis stage, um, the earlier years for you living with Crohn's, you mentioned that you sort of laid down the law with your family and you were like, I need to see a doctor, a specialist. I need to get tested. It sounds like pretty early on you were acting as your own advocate. And I'm wondering whether anyone in your family or friends has ever stepped in as a personal advocate at any point or whether it's really just been you all along sort of realizing that you needed to take control of your own body. Yeah, I, uh, my family is fantastic. And I think over the years, as my disease has gotten worse, they have stepped up, you know, they've realized that this is not something we can ignore. Um, But I do think that I come from a very like blue collar Midwestern, like rub some dirt on it kind of family. (laughs) So uh, take a Tylenol and you'll be fine. Uh, And so it was a bit of a journey to get us to the point we're at now. Um, Mm. I did really have to 
advocate for myself and I had to learn to use my words and tell my friends and family what I needed. Mm. Um, and it's a really important point. It is. It is because it's very hard, A, to admit you need help at all, but B, to be specific about the help you need. Yeah, because uh, sometimes you don't know what that is. Right. Um, and so I have gotten better at that over the years. My parents have gotten better about uh, you know being receptive to that over the years. In 2016, uh, when I was pretty much uh, confined to my house most of the time because of how sick I was. Uh, My mom would drive in. I was living in Chicago at the time and I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. And my mom would drive in and we would just like go to a very simple breakfast. But like that was what I had to look forward to at that time. You know, I wasn't socializing a lot. I was doing that. Um, And so I think like little things like that, like uh, my dad came and like assembled furniture for me when I needed Mm. it and things like that. So I think that to their credit, they really uh, over the years got a better understanding of the seriousness and what I needed and that I'm doing this alone. You know, I live alone. I'm not in a serious committed relationship. So like everything that I'm doing to care for myself, it's just me. Mm. Uh, And so sometimes I do need that help. Uh, And I will say I have uh, moved to DC within the past two years and my sister lives here. And Mm. so that has been really lovely. She was already away at college when I was diagnosed. So Ah. she didn't, this is kind of her first, uh, experience living around me while I'm sick. Yeah. Uh, And she has been really great. I bring her along to appointments when I think I need backup, uh, which sometimes you do need backup. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, she doesn't come to all of them, but she comes when I'm like, I think I need another person there. Um, and she, I think that at 18, when I was first diagnosed and into my early 20s, being independent was so important to me. It was just like, even as a kid, it's just like always been very important to me. And I actually, before I got really sick, spent a few months living in Los Angeles where I didn't know a soul. Um, had no family, had no existing friend support group. Hmm. Um, and that was actually when I started to get sick and I had to move back home. Wow. Um, and that was a really good lesson that, I mean, when you're living with a chronic illness, you shouldn't let it stop you, but you also have to be realistic about having a support system around hmm. you. And there are truly things that uh, I, came, I uh, came to realize when I was living on my own in LA, which was that you literally need someone to dis- to be there to discharge you from the hospital, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. People you just met a month ago maybe aren't people you can call to bring you home or to be your ride home from surgery or be your ride home from a colonoscopy. Or, you know, you need someone close. And whether that's a close friend or a significant other or a family member, um, I now am very adamant that I would not make a major move without knowing mm. that I had that person yeah. in whatever city I was living. Is that a source of anxiety? Like, you know, thinking about the future and going, well, I can't just go anywhere. You have to sort of think about all of the ins and outs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, I do see myself eventually moving back to Chicago at mm. some point in my life, maybe when I settle down and want to have kids and do all that. Um, and it is uh, I love Chicago. It's my favorite place in the world. Mm. But it is a little limiting to know that like, if I did want to settle down and have kids or if I did want to do X, Y, and Z, I need that extra support because I am not 
a full able-bodied person who, you know, can do all of these things for myself. And you also have to be in a place where there's very good medical care. You know, you can't be sort of out in the boonies. You have to be near a major hospital. Absolutely. And I have been very lucky that I got diagnosed at 18 and then I went to college in Chicago. Uh, and I've right. always, Chicago, LA, and DC, I've always lived in a major city. So have I. I'm with you on that one. We're sort of <laughs> spoiled because we don't know anything else. But I know, and you start I to go around the rest of the country and you're like, there are these other ways of living. And, <laughs> and you know. go, oh, but the hospitals. <laughs> you I know? Friends who live in rural areas. Uh, and I'm just reminded of how lucky I am to have immediate access to such a high quality of care and to so many different specialists. Um, And I know, as I'm sure you know, sometimes specialists have very long wait periods. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And so I can't imagine uh, the struggles that folks in rural areas have to go through to get on those waiting lists and get seen and get help. Yeah. Well, it's hard enough to be believed, to be taken seriously in a major metropolitan area with yeah. all the specialists. Yeah, it's it's definitely more of an uphill battle that way, I'm quite sure. Oh, yeah. And I think of the fact, too, that like if I have an experience with a doctor and I'm like, oh, that was uncomfortable, I did not like that doctor, mm-hmm. I can go see someone else. Yes, which <laughs> a lot of people don't have that option. Yes, if you're in a town where this is the only gastroenterologist, mm-hmm. you're going to make it work with that gastroenterologist. And yeah. that is a shame. And I hope that you know, rural healthcare can improve, but there's also limits just purely by the amount of people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it would be nice if there were more doctors who were open to not having to be at the major hospital, you know, going out into areas where there's still need for that kind of care um, and maybe living a slightly different kind of lifestyle and, and embracing that so that other people can have help from them would be pretty amazing. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. So what's a typical day looking like for you now as you're balancing the demands of work and life and your symptoms? You know, I mean, I know you mentioned your safe foods earlier. How is that sort of manifesting day to day? Yeah. So uh, I think at this point I have a pretty good toolkit of uh, little band-aids that I could use throughout mm-hmm. the day. Um, I have, you know, uh, I am a big appreciator of Icy Hot. Uh, (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) I love my heating pad. I love my work heating pad. Um, Well, that's, and that's a good thing. That's a good point that you you bring up there about like making your workspace as comfortable as anywhere else so that you can feel safe and not anxiety ridden if you do have minor symptoms at work. Yes, I am a nester for sure. Uh, mm. And so I keep kind of, and I think that that is actually something that a lot of folks with chronic illness identify with is like always carrying a bag of extra meds with you. Yeah. And like, I'm like Mary Poppins, like, do you want a Zofran? <laughs> uh, and so yeah. I have a lot of uh, kind of things to fall back on. But I think the biggest thing is that I've been really lucky to leverage my skill set into a uh, career that where being a patient is an advantage. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I bring experience that other people don't bring. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have very accommodating supervisors and coworkers. um, And so it is, I, and I'm lucky that I was at a point in my career that I had enough experience that I could say, hey, I need these accommodations and know that that would be respected. Absolutely. Uh, 
Well, I and also feel that you were in an environment, professionally speaking, that was open to you asking for what you needed. Yes. And I, uh, I, I work from home every Friday, which is mm-hmm. huge in terms of just my energy levels. Yeah. Um, I can take kind of unlimited uh, medical time for appointments mm-hmm. and things like that. They don't count that against my vacation time, which is really key. Yeah. Um, and I, so I'm always, I, I would say one of the questions I'm most often asked in my advocacy with younger patients is mm-hmm. like, when do I disclose? Which is yeah. a really fraught question, right? Because it's different for every person. It's different for every scenario. I always say you kind of have to feel out the employer and see what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a position where you have leverage and you've developed your career already, you can do some negotiating and ask for like a work from home day or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also realize that that is a privileged place to be coming from and that there are some folks who just have to take the job because they need to pay their bills. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that there is a lot of improvement to be made um, in terms of accommodating folks with chronic illness into the mm. working world. Yeah, absolutely. And also understanding how many people are living with various forms of chronic illness because it's an epidemic, you know, we're looking at ep- epidemic scales, but yes. um, for whatever reason, the working world has not been renegotiated to work around our bodies, you know, and like you said earlier, people are working this 80 hour work week and everyone has a side hustle. That's not going to work when you're someone who's dealing with fatigue or brain fog or, you know, potential flares that are brought on by stressful situations. It's just not sustainable, is it? Well, and that's my favorite soapbox that I'm sure annoys the hell out of my DC friends uh, (laughs) is I am the person that's always like, it's not cute to brag about how you haven't slept this week or like, oh, you don't have time to eat. Like there is this pervasive culture that's like the harder you're working, the better you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we don't need to kill ourselves uh, in pursuit of our jobs, Um, even if your job is you know, changing the world and doing really excellent work, you still have to take care of yourself mm-hmm. and you have to set an example for others that it's okay to take care of yourself. Um, and I think that starts at the top in organizations and it's really easy to get swept up and be like, I'm going to stay up till 1am answering emails and I'm going to work on the weekends and I'm going to do all these things. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon leaders within companies and organizations to set the culture and that that's not the expectation. Mm, absolutely. What about when people don't believe you, though? I mean, I, I'm sure you've found yourself, and you mentioned earlier, in situations where you've had to validate your own experience for other people, you know, and, and get people to believe you. What happens to people when they're not believed in these situations? Yeah. I mean, I think that is one of the hardest parts because Mm -hmm. a lot of these symptoms are nebulous and hard to explain. And totally invisible. Yes. And truly healthy people, I think often it's a defense mechanism that they don't want to believe that this can happen because if it can happen to me, it can happen Mm -hmm. to them. And if it can happen to you, it can happen to them. Uh, And they don't, they, I think that there is this pervasive thought among people who kind of want to push it away that, oh, no, no, if that was me, I would just work harder. I would just handle it. <laughs> You're you already know? working harder to look normal. Like, yeah. It's like, oh, no, no, that would never be me. And I mm-hmm. think that that is the hardest part. 
And I think that's where it comes from often when people yeah. don't believe you is this idea that that could never be them. Um, mm-hmm. And so you must have some moral failing or personal failing right. that is leading to you needing these accommodations or you needing help. Uh, and so that is the idea that we have to crush. <laughs> and I think yeah. That, I think that crushing that comes from telling our stories. Yeah. Um, being truthful. And yeah, I've, I would say the most often I've had people not believe me or I've had to justify my symptoms to someone has been in scenarios where, uh, it's the older generation. And mm. I think in that generation, um, my parents, my grandparents, et cetera, the not them, strappers, right. Not them specifically, not my parents yeah. specifically, but folks that age is, uh, it's taboo to talk about your health. They mm. see it as a taboo, they see it as potentially like attention seeking, which yeah. makes me irate. But yeah. <laughs> it's but, that well, and then it's it's forever connected to this idea of what a millennial is, and it's just so incorrect. <laughs> yeah, so all we want to do is talk about our problems. Yeah. Uh, but I think that that idea and knowing that that's how those people feel just drives me to want to talk about it more. Mm. Uh, because when I was diagnosed at 18, this was. I'm going to make myself sound old, but like, I didn't have a smartphone. This was pre, like, <laughs> this was pre Instagram. This yep. was pre, uh, listen, I grew up with a typewriter in the house, so <laughs> <laughs> you're doing fine. <laughs> right. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't the same community that there is now. And I didn't know a soul in real life who mm. also had Crohn's. I felt completely alone. Mm. Uh, and I think that when we tell our stories, we validate other people. Yes. And I think that if you're someone who is not being believed, you will start to doubt yourself. And so it's important for the rest of us to be out there telling our stories and telling people that it's okay to tell yours. Mm. Uh, because I think you compound the trauma of living with pain when you're forced to hide it and pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. To make other people feel more comfortable, which in my opinion, they should feel a little uncomfortable uh, yeah. because I think that if they're too complacent, we're never going to get better treatment or uh, you know more affordable care if people don't realize how serious and how prevalent this is. People yeah. need to know that they have close friends and family living with chronic illnesses. And if we don't talk about it, they don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. Have you been in situations that you could tell us about where you've been forced to justify your illness to other people aside from, you know, early on with your family and being like, we need to take this more seriously, but, (laughs) you know, perhaps with doctors or, or, you know, employers or friends that just didn't get it? Yeah. So, uh, in 2018, uh, Mm -hmm. when I moved to DC, uh, the timing was really just almost exact that a couple months after I moved here, uh, I started inexplicably fainting. Mm. Um, and I moved here in April and I don't know if, uh, you or anyone who is listening to this has been to Washington DC in the summer, uh, but <laughs> very hot and very humid. Yeah. Uh, it ain't so- fun. That's it. It's when it reminds you it's in the South. <laughs> oh yeah. It's the swamp thing is yeah. like, it's real. It's a weather thing. Yeah. <laughs> And so I kind of just chalked it up to like, I don't deal well with humidity. I don't deal mm. well with heat. Like this is why I'm fainting. And then it was happening a lot. Uh, mm. And it was, uh, even if I wasn't fully fainting, I was constantly feeling like I was going to faint. And it was 
getting to a point that it was dangerous because I live alone. And, mm. you know, I actually, the first time it happened, I was on the National Mall and I fainted at a Smithsonian. Wow. <laughs> and so I, it was just getting to a point that it was untenable. Um, and in, in addition to fainting, I started having some uh, kind of scary neurological symptoms. Mm. I was having trouble coming up with words, which as an English major was really stressful. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, telling my sister the same story five times and not mm. remembering that I had told her already. Uh, so I told my gastroenterologist about it because she was just who I was seeing at the time. Uh, wondering if it was maybe a side effect of my meds or what was happening. And she referred me to a neurologist and a cardiologist. Mm. Um, and Which is already an anxiety inducing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I went to the cardiologist and, uh, you know, he was just an older white man. Uh, very nice. Gee, I, I have a feeling I know where this is going. <laughs> has a nice clinic. I'm sure he makes very good money. Uh, mm. And he did not ask me any questions, did not ask me to tell him what was wrong. He looked at my echo and said, you're fine. Sometimes young women just faint. Oh my good God. And then he left the room. And so I paid and a bunch of money. did you scream? <laughs> I was irate. I was yeah. like, this is you paid not, a bunch of money to be stressed by your own anger. Yeah, this is not right. the 1800s. We're not just uh, mm-hmm. telling women they faint for no reason. We're not hysterics. <laughs> and here's the thing. If my echo came back clean, that is fine with me. Mm. I just want doctors who are willing to have the conversation, ask some questions. Yeah. Um, Engage not, with you as a whole person. Right, and not condescend to patients. And so uh, that was wildly frustrating. and. Mm at the end. So after that, I brought my sister with me to the neurologist so that I had some backup. Yeah, um, smart. And also she could attest to the neurological symptoms. And mm. so the neurologist listened to everything I said, did like a full exam and then said, has anyone tested your B12 levels? Mm. Uh, and it turned out what was wrong was like a very simple vitamin deficiency. Wow. Um, but a B12 deficiency, if you don't catch it, gets really serious. Um, and it can cause fainting. It can cause numbness in your uh, extremities. It can cause neurological symptoms. Mm. Um, and the B12 deficiency was related to the Crohn's because I just was not absorbing the nutrients in the way that I should. Um, and so it was so frustrating because it was this really easy fix. I now get uh, B12 injections every two weeks and wow. it's like a night and day difference. Mm. I'm doing a lot better. Um, and it was so frustrating to me because after all was said and done and I had all these tests and I had seen three different doctors, uh, I was, uh, I had like $2,000 worth of medical bills that... <sighs> came that I wouldn't have had if people had listened to the whole story earlier on. And yeah. so I think that is really frustrating. And I always- That's a great example of where the system is working against us as well. Right. And that's- Like if your doctor had taken more than 10 minutes or if, you know, someone had listened more, or been taught to listen. I mean, there's a million factors at play here, but- Well, yeah. and that's the thing too is, that, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of people don't have the privilege or the time- or the money to, not that I had the money, but <laughs> I made it work. <laughs> yeah. Um, but people, a lot of patients don't have the time or the money um, or the support 
to go through a diagnostic process like that and they yeah. would give up. And if you, if I had given up, um, that B12 deficiency could have gotten worse and I could have had permanent damage. Yeah. Um, and so that's what's really frustrating. And so I always tell other patients, um, if you're in an appointment and you're like, hey, I'd really like to do this test because I think this might be wrong with me and I'd love to do this test. And the doctor brushes you off and doesn't want to do the test. Um, a fun trick is that if you say, can you make a note in my chart that you've refused to do this test? Such a good note. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, they will do it because they don't want it on the record that Mm -hmm. they refused you. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is an issue with overtesting. I don't think that everyone should have every test in the world done, but Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to set the tone with a potentially dismissive physician that you're not here to mess around. Uh, and then and this so, is your health and you're in control of it, not them. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I think that there's, you know, all this. I also, another tip that I tell people, uh, like I said, I bring my sister mm-hmm. to uh, appointments because she's just, you know, who I have available to me. But um, I, I, there is data to support that if you uh, bring a man with you to appointment. I know. Yeah. And specifically a white man usually. Yeah. Like if you bring your dad. Yeah. Yes. Which is very frustrating. Um, It's frustrating for single people like me. It's frustrating for the LGBTQ community and it's just frustrating in general. Well, Uh, and it reinforces this patriarchal BS that our whole society is built on anyway, you know? Right. And I shouldn't have to have a man with me to be taken Mm -hmm. seriously by a medical team. Uh, They should believe when I tell them about my symptoms. And so there's actually a really excellent book that I read uh, a few years ago, probably two years ago now by Maya Dusenberry called Doing Harm. Mm. Um, And it will uh, put you into a full rage to read it. (laughs) (laughs) The statistics, you know, with regard to these kinds of discussions are maddening, but it's so important that we know about them so that we can act on them, isn't it? Yes. And it is absolutely enraging. Um, But that book was a real eye opener for me that, you know, women wait longer in uh, ERs with the Mm. same symptoms as men. If a woman comes into an ER with chest pain, she'll wait over an hour, whereas a man will wait 45 minutes. Well, and she'll be um, sent home with Tylenol when exactly. she's having a heart attack, you know. Right. Yeah. And so that's, and also, I mean, just the fact that I could talk about this for days, but mm. just the fact that um, when we're taught uh, what the symptoms of a heart attack are, when like on posters and whatever, those are the symptoms of a heart attack in men. Those are not the symptoms. The symptoms of a heart attack in women are very different. Yeah, that um, medical research has skewed toward white males. Absolutely. And I mean, it wasn't even until the 80s that the NIH demanded that women be included in research studies. But it's so it's just this real uh, just rabbit hole of just horrific statistics. If anyone feels mm-hmm. like looking them up, um, smarter people than I have written about it extensively. But I think that it is a real issue and uh, specifically for women, but even more so for women of color um, and, you know, poor women. And it's, it's, uh, I don't think it changes until we uh, admit that it's an issue. Absolutely. Well, I mean, speaking of, of all of this discussion of 
bias in the medical system. I mean, you've brought up that, you know, in a few instances, you recognized your own privilege in your treatment plan. Do you think that in any, at any point along the journey, you've experienced undue prejudice or privilege in the healthcare system, particularly because you identify as a white female? Like, can you see your circumstances being different if you presented otherwise? Oh, absolutely. And I think also the fact that I am, uh, I have learned over the years to just be incredibly adamant uh, about getting what I need. Um, And I think that because I work adjacent to healthcare, I, you know, have knowledge base that other people maybe don't have. And it is deeply frustrating to me that you have to essentially have like a PhD in navigating the health system to get anything done, um, to get things covered by your insurance or to not be a victim of surprise billing or um, to not go bankrupt because you have a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. And so it is, I feel that I have uh, a bit of privilege in terms of just because I was able to get a college education and kind of worm my way into the work that I do, mm-hmm. uh, I definitely have uh, kind of a better standing than a lot of patients. And that's always why I yell so loud and fight so hard yeah. is because I always think if this was so hard for me, imagine yeah. how hard it is. I mean, I had a day that I had to be on the phone with an insurance company for probably six hours yeah. to get the tr- to get And that's not unusual either. No, no. And to get the drugs approved that I needed. And it was at the doctor's office because I arrived and they said, you can't get your infusion today. Mm. The insurance won't cover it. And so I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I have this really understanding workplace, but what if I'm an hourly paid worker or what if I'm someone who's paying for childcare while I'm at this infusion and suddenly I'm gone for six hours because that's how long it took to get insurance to cover my infusion. Mm -hmm. And like we were talking about earlier with biologics, you can't skip a dose. You can't be late on a dose. You need it when you need it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for insurers to kind of mess around with that is very frustrating to me. And it's always those hourly workers and those moms who need childcare and people like that, that I am fighting for, because like I said, if it's hard for me, it's a million times harder for them. And someone who has that privilege needs to be wielding it in a way that will help them. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us about Patients for Affordable Drugs and specifically about the work that you guys are doing to not only raise awareness of changes in drug pricing and availability in this country, but also to push for greater availability and better pricing for patients? Yeah. So like you mentioned uh, at the top of the episode, I am the digital director for Patients for Affordable Drugs. Um, I by a lucky turn of events, just kind of saw that they were looking for a digital director. I was a digital director uh, (laughs) and I was smitten by the idea of getting to work in advocacy full time instead of just doing it at night as my quote unquote side hustle. (laughs) (laughs) Unpaid side hustle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And so I was thrilled to get this job, especially because so P4AD, Patients for Affordable Drugs, um, it was started just in 2017, so we're still fairly young. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, but we are making a lot of waves for a young organization. Uh, mm. Our founder, David Mitchell, um, he has multiple myeloma. And mm. so he had this really great career in Washington uh, before his diagnosis. 
Um, and he then after he retired was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a rare blood cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, and much like with biologics, uh, David's cancer is incurable, and so he is fully dependent on uh, the development of new drugs because his cancer will find its way around drugs. And so it will, you know, the drug that's working for him right now in a year, it could stop and then he'll need another one. And so David understands, and I think all of us understand how important it is to keep researching and keep developing new drugs. Mm. Uh, But he also understands uh, that, you know, it's turned into kind of our slogan, but it is fundamentally true that drugs don't work if people can't afford them. There's no point in research and development on a drug if the people who need that drug don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a happy medium between the amount that drug companies are spending on research and development and the amount they're charging for these drugs, because it is inconscionable to me that we have pharmaceutical company executives who... Oh, I know. um, I know where you're going. (laughs) It's so hard because I do not begrudge anyone a profit. You are a company. You deserve to make a profit. I think the issue comes in that they are making such an enormous profit that it is in my opinion, immoral. Well, and they're um, making enormous profits while the price of insulin, which is probably the best example right now, goes up 600% in a year. And people are eking their medications out and dying because of it. Insulin is a truly horrific example. Um, I mean, there was a young man in Minnesota uh, just a few years ago who he was right on that cusp of uh, turning 26 and he turned 26. He was a manager of a restaurant. Um, and he didn't have insurance because, uh, I used to work in the service industry. I know how terrible it is when it comes to benefits. Um, and I think there are some, there are actually, I will interject here and say there are a few employers in that service industry who are starting to actually provide healthcare, which is is awesome. And like, there's usually (laughs) like a little bit you know, tacked onto the end of someone's bill. But the number of people who I'll go and eat out with will be like, why should I have to pay for this? And I'm like, you're kidding, right? Like (laughs) these people just gave you excellent service and put your food in front of you and didn't spit in it. Like, you know. As they, just as much as anyone else, deserve uh, to live and to have access to their medications. Um, And Alec, this uh, he's a restaurant manager. And because he didn't have insurance, uh, he... I believe he was biding his time. He was going to get insurance, but he was, you know, saving up first. Uh, and he was rationing his insulin and he passed away uh, because he, rationing your insulin is a very uh, dangerous act yeah. that people only do when they're desperate and they truly mm-hmm. have no other choice. Um, and he didn't need to die. And I think that that to me is kind of the key to all of this is that. I, like I said, I don't begrudge anyone a profit, but pharmaceutical companies will make the argument that if we lower drug prices, mm. they will not be able to spend money on research and development. But that's yeah. just. But then why does your CEO take home 200 million in profit? Exactly. And it's just fundamentally untrue for two reasons. Uh, one is because all you have to do is look at. CEO salaries to know that they could make some cuts. Um, And two is that uh, 
I believe the number is nine out of 10 major pharmaceutical companies spend more on marketing and advertising Mm. than they do on research and development. So if they took money out of the budgets that they use to put a million uh, drug commercials on... uh, And that's an interesting one too because there are countries where advertising pharmaceuticals is illegal and for good reason. Actually, every country in the world except for the United States and New Zealand have outlawed it. I don't know why yeah. us in New Zealand are uh, also yeah, because New Zealand's also quite progressive, right? Right. <laughs> I thought it was like that's a little random, but <laughs> yeah, in every other way, they're perfect, <laughs> right? And so that is why it's so tough for me because it's just a disingenuous argument. Mm. Um, it's the argument that you know, we can't lower drug prices by a penny or these pharmaceutical companies will fold. And that's not the case. Uh, They can take money out of their advertising budgets and still make a good profit. And and nobody needs to take home what those CEOs are taking home. I don't care who you are. And so that's kind of what we, we fight against that rhetoric. There are no other organizations that are focused on legislation to lower drug prices Mm. that don't take any money from pharmaceutical companies. And so I, like I said, I've had Crohn's for 10 years and I've only worked here for two years. I am very involved as a volunteer with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Mm. I know there are a variety of other patient organizations that do wonderful work. Um, I think they provide really important education resources and support Mm. groups and things like that. But because they take money from pharmaceutical companies, they can't really weigh in on this issue They're no matter how much right, no matter how much it's affecting patients, they can't weigh in. And mm-hmm. so we David's thought process was like, okay, these patient organizations are filling one void, we can fill the other. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, came in and we got funded and we now um, are able to bring patients to Washington, D.C. to tell their stories. And you've, Um, in fact, spoken in front of Congress, haven't you? I have. It has been a wild couple of years. Mm. Uh, I, just this past October, testified in front of the House Ways and Means Committee um, on drug pricing and actually got to drop some of the fun statistics that I just told you. Um, Which is great. That's why you know them, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Aside from the fact that that's what you do. (laughs) Burned into my brain because I had to say it in front of Congress, which is a little nerve wracking. But uh, yeah, I bet. And that is, uh, it really is so important to have actual patients speaking up. And that's why I love P4ED so much and what we do because we really are giving patients a voice. And not only that, uh, we have patients here. Um, David is a patient. I am a patient. Our community organizing director, Lauren, uh, has type 1 diabetes. And our communications director, Juliana, her son has cystic fibrosis. And so this is very immediate to all of us. We're not, you know, we didn't just come here because we wanted a job in DC. We came here because uh, we feel very passionately about this and we feel very passionately that patients shouldn't die or lose their home or uh, even just on a, I mean, we have patients who maybe they haven't had to refinance their mortgage, but they're, especially with young people, they're just living in this constant fear that they depend. I mean, my quality of life is totally dependent on a biologic that works. Yeah. And access to it. Yeah. Right. So I am terrified at the prospect of 
God forbid, losing my insurance mm-hmm. or being between jobs. I mean, I can't take the same uh, risks as my healthy peers. You know, I can't take a year off to travel or <laughs> <laughs> I can't, not that I could do don't that. Don't go, don't eat, pray, love on me. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> not that I could do that in general, but you yeah. know, I every, I could be offered my dream job tomorrow and I wouldn't be able to take it if they didn't have excellent insurance. Um, yeah. And it's a little bit of a moot point because this is kind of my dream job. Yeah. <laughs> But that being said, if I were offered tomorrow to be like, uh, you know, personal assistant to Ryan Gosling or something, I couldn't do it because <laughs> uh, I, insurance coverage and ability to afford my care and afford my drugs is the pa- paramount concern of my whole life. And I yeah. don't think that's how it should have to be for patients. And you mentioned that P4AD doesn't take funding from pharmaceutical companies. So do you think that part of your mission is to destabilize the power of f- big pharma in, in government? What, what is like, you know, what's your stance on big pharma? Cause obviously they're also researching and creating drugs that a lot of us need. Right. Yeah. So you're yeah. not here to be like, we hate big pharma. That's not right. what this is and, about. Uh, like I said, David and I, uh, literally David needs the development of new drugs to live. Uh, He will die without new drugs. And so the importance of innovation is not lost on us. um, And the importance of what pharmaceutical companies do is not lost on us. I think it's just gotten so uh, diluted by greed um, that, you know, there are small biopharma companies that are doing really amazing work. uh, And, you know, Another thing that I think people don't know is that so many of the drugs that pharmaceutical companies are charging us for were funded at least partially by taxpayers. So your taxes go into funding the National Institutes of Health, which then do a ton of the basic research on these drugs. And then that research is sold to a pharmaceutical company that can charge whatever they want for the drug that results from that research. There's just no and, control on the on what they can charge. Right. And so I think that's our approach is that we just want reasonable regulation around what they're able to do. People would not accept this kind of behavior if it were like a utilities company, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Charged whatever they wanted for electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh people would be rioting in the streets. Yeah. <laughs> so I, think I would that, be investing in candles. <laughs> right. And so I think that we try to harness the energy of the patients who know what a serious issue this is. And a lot of them are folks who, um, you know, live in rural areas and they don't have a platform. They don't have, you know, like they are, we've flown patients into DC who this is the first time they've ever flown on an airplane. Um, and so we're trying to give a voice to people who otherwise wouldn't have one. Uh, because I think that all too often in healthcare, the people who are doing the talking uh, are people in extreme places of privilege. And so we try to give a voice, whether that is a blog post about your story or testifying at uh, your local state capitol or in front of Congress. Um, I am far from the only patient who has testified in front of Congress on behalf Mm -hmm. of P4AD. And so we want to make sure that legislators 
and people at pharmaceutical companies and stakeholders everywhere understand that this is real and this is happening to their constituents. Um, People are dying. People are really suffering. um, And there's no reason for that to be happening while AbbVie, the company that makes Humira, which is a very popular biologic used to treat Crohn's, um, arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, yeah. Yes, a variety of things. Um, Abby makes more money on Humira than the revenue of every NFL team combined. <gasps> <laughs> oh <laughs> so my goodness. And we already me, know the NFL's trumped up, so. Right. And wow. so that to me really puts in perspective just how out of hand the profit margins mm. have gotten. Um, we're not asking for these people to volunteer their time to develop mm. these drugs. We're just asking for a fair shake for patients who have no choice but to buy these drugs. This isn't a situation where you can shop around. You know, this isn't, if your doctor tells you you need this drug, um, I mean, inhalers are a situation where people are being price gouged and that's literally life or death, your ability to breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's no reason. And you see it a lot also with like HIV drugs. I mean, that was a pretty famous case with Martin Shkreli and yeah. And even with PrEP and things like that, like preventive drugs as well. There is, um, I'm trying to remember which drug company this was. Uh, there is a new- Call them out. Call them out. <laughs> <laughs> there is a new drug on the market. Uh, so there's a drug on the market already called Truvada. That's a PrEP drug for HIV. Um, and Truvada is about to run out of its patent, which means- Uh-oh. That Uh, generics can come to market, which is how the system is meant to work. Mm -hmm. Um, You're meant to make a good chunk of money while you have exclusivity. Mm -hmm. And then once your exclusivity exclusivity ends, other people can come in. It drives down the price. That's ideally how the market works. But But in our world, it sometimes (laughs) drives up the price. And that's the thing too. Some of these drug companies, they will get around patents by just changing the color of the pill or changing Mm -hmm. it from a pill Uh, from a capsule to a tablet. Um, And so that's always what I try to get across to people when they're like, but the pharmaceutical companies need to make money. Um, And I think that some patients have, they have it, they've gotten the messaging so hard from pharma Mm. that they're afraid, you know, they're afraid to speak out because they don't want to lose what could potentially be a cure for their illness or a new medication. Well, because we Uh, also know how much money is behind pharma and how much of that goes into their legal. Oh yeah. They spend millions and millions on lobbying every year. Um, And so we kind of see ourselves as the counterweight to pharma's influence. Mm -hmm. You know, there was pharma has had influence in Washington for years and years and years. And there's never been, patients have never had a voice. Mm -hmm. And so we are trying to provide that voice. Yeah. And it's a strategy that also works because as you've said a few times in this interview, sharing stories and giving patients the platform to do that is exactly how we not only validate within our communities, validate ourselves, but also how we show others that what's going on is real. Absolutely. And it is... I mean, I think that oftentimes people, and I mean, before I worked here, I also think I thought this, uh, that fighting for lower drug prices or fighting against pharma is a losing battle. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now that I work here, I'm actually more optimistic than I ever was before. That's Uh, extremely good news. Laws are being passed on the state level across the country because I think states are tired of waiting for the federal government to take action. (laughs) Uh, The laws are passing on the state level. 
Um, there are so many, like I said, there are so many shady tactics being used. There are laws that are uh, targeting those individual tactics mm. that are being passed. And the bill wow. that I, so when I testified in October, I was testifying in favor of a bill called HR3. Yep. Um, and HR3 uh, passed the House of Representatives in wow. 2019 before the year ended. Um, it is stalled in the Senate because that is how <laughs> governing works. Mm-hmm. Um, but we... Well, has- but that's where you have to follow the money trail too. If something's stalled in the Senate, it's probably because there are people being paid by Big Pharma <laughs> who are in control yeah. in the Senate. I mean, let's be real about this. This is exactly the discussion that we're having, you know, on political stomping grounds right now. with the presidential election coming up. It's like, you just have to follow the money to know exactly why people are making choices that don't perhaps help their constituents, but actually help themselves because they're being paid off. Yes. And that is, I think it's so important because we're at a really unique time right now where I think legislators are starting to understand that people won't accept this anymore. Um, And it has reached a bipartisan fever pitch where people on both sides Um, I always say, you know, there are, uh, regardless of my personal political views, there are uh, Democrats that are good and bad on drug pricing, and there are Republicans who are good and bad on drug pricing. Um, But I do think that legislators are realizing more and more that people just aren't going to put up with it anymore. So many people are on medication that they need, and it is unacceptable, and people are really starting to speak out. Well, and I think it's also that that realization that we're all going to need medical care. We're all going to need to use the system. Whether we'll have to be medicated is it's, it's probably a foregone conclusion, a foregone conclusion (laughs) for most people that you're going to end up on something or needing something. And if you wake up and start taking care of people now, then you won't have to worry when you're older too. You know, it's, it's that, you know, taking care of everyone else is just as important as taking care of yourself. And I always tell people, you know, you are one diagnosis, one day away from being in the shoes of patients who like us. And so I think that people don't often don't realize that it could just as easily happen to them. Yeah. So in terms of the way that drug pricing and and the role of big pharma is playing out, as well as our healthcare system in general, you know, the presence of insurance companies, for example, um, here in the U.S., we know that there are a lot of ways in which things are not working, and there's a lot of positive change happening um, that you guys are at the forefront of. Are there ways in which some of this stuff is working for patients? Like, is it, it's not all bad news, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that, like I was saying earlier, I am really emboldened by the younger generation Mm. uh, and how not only how open they're willing to be, but also just that they are not willing to accept what is so blatantly unacceptable. Yeah. Um, I think that for a long time, people just got complacent and were like, this is just how it is. Yes. Um, And so I think, you know, this younger generation are going like, this isn't how it has to be. Like, that's very helpful. (laughs) And I love it. I love to see it. And so I think that is a net positive for patients because even if you maybe don't feel comfortable speaking out, there are people who are speaking out for you um, and they are trying to help. And I also think that uh, as much as I 
could talk for days about medical biases. Uh, Mm. I have also been lucky to have some truly amazing medical professionals in my life. Yeah. Uh, We have great doctors here. We can't be denied. When we find a good doctor, they're extremely good. I have uh, my physician as well as my uh, nurse practitioner uh, Mm. at my gastroenterologist. Both of them are excellent because they just they feel like detectives. Like they won't, mm. uh, they'll have, they have notes, they have all these things prepared. I never feel like I'm being dismissed. They are, you know, they listen and they don't give up. And I think that's key for medical professionals is like, you're not going to be able to solve every mystery. You know, sometimes the medicine's just not, the science just isn't there yet. Um, but I think it's so key to just talk to patients like they're people and it's okay to sit I would rather have a doctor sit me down and say, we don't have an answer for you, but like, we believe you than let, you know, egos get in the way and think to themselves, like, like, you're well, fine. if I can't find it, it doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you're not the first person to say that on the show. I think that's a quite a prevailing opinion, actually, you know, that like, we'd all rather be believed and, and the good doctors are the ones who go, you know, I don't know, but maybe this person will. So why don't you go see them? It's that total removal of ego. It, it works for everyone yeah. in very positive ways. And there's just so much that we don't know. And I think that being able to admit that is important. Um, it wasn't until uh, the 1900s that people even considered that autoimmune diseases could exist because initially the doctors and the scientists who brought forth the idea of autoimmune diseases uh, were kind of laughed out of the room because everyone was like, why would your body attack itself? <laughs> um, and so... Yeah, I heaven forbid. Right. And I think it's about an openness and a sense of curiosity and realizing mm. that we don't know everything. That it, like the medical system does not know everything. We are constantly discovering new illnesses, new symptoms, new treatments. Um, there are and, illnesses we know of now that we still need to dig deeper on. I mean... It, Exactly. I mean, we, like I said earlier, they don't know why uh, Crohn's patients in remission have such bad issues with fatigue. They just don't know. Um, And I think that there are diseases that specifically affect women that are not very well researched. Um, I have had issues over the years uh, with chronic migraine and that affects mostly women and that is not very well researched. Endometriosis mm. is a horrific example. Oh yeah. Just that's no true. resources. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, and, and it's like, we need to see a sea change in the way in which we're researching as well, don't we? Yes. And I think truly all of it does come down to an openness and a sense of curiosity and a willingness to admit that we don't already know everything. And a willingness to admit that we've operated under bias, you know, that we've operated with sort of preconceived notions about what the body is, that the, you know, it's always been a white male body. Yes. Researched is so limiting and that just because that's not even the, the largest part of the population, you know, that we need to be researching women more. We need to be researching people of color more. We need to be adding all of the population and the way it looks like demographically into our research. Right. And I think that is, uh, I think a lot of women and a lot of women of color are dealing with feeling a bit gaslit by the idea. A bit. Yeah. (laughs) 
by the idea that sexism and racism um, in medicine aren't as prevalent as we think it is. And oh, they just, are. <laughs> not even just in medicine, in politics, in every area of life, you know, people mm. tell me like, oh, it's not that bad. It can't be that bad. Um, and I oh, think it is. medicine specifically shows statistical sexism and racism yep. with data to support I mean, look it, at the mortality rate among black mothers. That's like the, the easiest statistic to go to, to see that, you know, sexism and racism are alive and well, and that we need to combat them. Yeah, I've heard that uh, Washington, D.C. is the most dangerous uh, place in America for a Black woman to give birth. Uh, Mm. And that is unacceptable. Completely unacceptable, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that is, we have to acknowledge that it's a problem before we can solve the problem. Absolutely. Too many people aren't willing to acknowledge it. Well, that's what you're trying to change in the work you're doing. That's another (laughs) one of the many reasons. But it's another one of the many reasons why it's so important the work you're doing, you know? Yeah. So we're sort of coming to the end of things here. I don't want to, cause this is all like, I'm like, I want to keep talking about everything. <laughs> I could obviously talk about this forever. But. I know. Well, we'll have to have you back on to talk about more of this <laughs> stuff, I think. But, um, you know, you mentioned a few tips for patients, uh, while we've been chatting and I'm wondering what your top three tips might be for someone who maybe is living with a chronic illness. Maybe they're waiting to be diagnosed. Maybe they've got a Crohn's diagnosis. What are your top three tips for people who are living in this world of invisible chronic illness? That is an excellent question because I wish that I had this podcast when I was 18. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> but uh, I think the number one thing, which is something we've touched on in this conversation, is just that you are your own best advocate. You know your body best. Don't doubt it, no matter how Absolutely. much you might be you know, tempted to doubt your own mind and your mm-hmm. own symptoms. Or told by uh, other people to doubt your own mind. Exactly. Uh, and so I think it's, uh, it kind of comes down to that, like the idea that if you don't advocate for yourself, who will, you know, no one is going to fight harder for you than you. Um, and it's frustrating that we have to do this much work and we have to spend countless hours on the phone with insurance companies. Uh, it makes me want to scream, but it is true. But there Uh, are those of us who are actually on the ground fighting to change that right now. So that's the good news. Yes, that is the good news. Yeah. Um, and I think the probably the biggest tip that I would give someone newly diagnosed or someone who's fighting to get a diagnosis is to seek out mental health care. Yeah, um, that's huge. Because I was not told that early <laughs> on in my diagnosis. Uh, and I think that I had a lot of mental health crises that I could have avoided if I had known I mean, being diagnosed with an incurable illness that you're going to have for the rest of your life when you're 18 is cruel and it is uh, a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. And I think that in hindsight, I'm like, of course, I would have developed issues with depression and anxiety around that. Like, of course. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you don't think that way. And no one in my life was telling me that. And so I just felt like a failure. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that's the number one thing that I always want to get across, especially to younger folks is like, you're not a failure. It is very normal that you're feeling this way. Mm -hmm. Um, and you should find an excellent therapist, um, and some antidepressants maybe, and, you know, make sure that that is part of your care team. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the third piece for me is just finding a community. Like Mm -hmm. I said, I didn't know anyone when I was first diagnosed. Um, and since then, I have gotten super involved. Um, And even things like, you know, 
the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation does a walk every year. That's a great way to get to know people. Um, I'm a camp counselor in one, for a week every summer at Camp Oasis, which is a camp for kids with Crohn's and colitis. That's so lovely. Um, truly the best experience of my life. The kids mm-hmm. are amazing. Um, and it's also been a great way for me to meet peers uh, mm-hmm. because of other counselors and things like that. Um, there are local foundations for various illnesses that do like happy hours and support groups. Um, and if nothing else, you can find people online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that finding other people who kind of understand what you're going through to some extent, at least is a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. So the last top three list is top three things that, I mean, we know you've had to make some lifestyle changes post-diagnosis and, um, work around potential symptoms and flares. So this list is top three things that you're unwilling to compromise on. They could be top three guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities when you have a flare up, but like top three things that give you unbridled joy that you're doing no matter what. Uh, I love a guilty pleasure. They're <laughs> my favorite things. Um, I would say that probably a lot of people will shake their head at this, but one of the things I'm not willing to compromise on uh, is being active on the internet. Mm. Um, it can be really bad for your mental health, but it can also be really great. Um, and I think, especially for the folks we were talking about who live in maybe more rural areas, um, and don't have access to support groups or things like that in person, um, you can find other folks, literally the chronic illness hashtag on Instagram has like 3 million posts and counting. It's Mm -hmm. constantly being updated. And I think there's a caveat with that, that obviously you have to be really careful because there are a lot of people online who will try to take advantage of sick folks to make money, um, pyramid schemes and all that good stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. there's also disinformation. So I wouldn't advise anyone to, you know, take medical advice from an Instagram post, but I do think it is a good way to make some, I mean, I have folks that I met through social media in 2016 when I was really sick Mm -hmm. that I've since met in person and consider them very good friends um, across the country. And so I think that as long as you do it responsibly and you curate your feeds so that it is good for your mental health, Mm -hmm. um, I think that those can be excellent resources for people. I mean, also like the, the invention of the meme has been such a gift, you know? I mean, I I thought to myself, especially over the last few days, because we're chatting soon after super Tuesday, you know, the internet has been delivering some beautiful gems, especially on Twitter. So I can see where it's like, yes, curate your feed, but also like when there's funny stuff that like makes you follow that funny stuff. To be able to laugh. There's a, uh, a Carrie Fisher quote. Uh, I love Carrie Fisher. She's Mm. excellent. But um, there's a Carrie Fisher quote that's like, if my life wasn't funny, it would just be true. And that's unacceptable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think it is important, especially I know among the Crohn's and colitis community, I mean, you have a disease that is like seen by many people as gross. Mm. Um, And so to be able to laugh about it and joke about it is- Oh, poop jokes are the best jokes. The best jokes. (laughs) Uh, It cannot be denied. To be able to like be real about that and laugh about it and talk about it is vital to my mental health. Yeah. Um, and then my number two item is my cats. Speaking um, of poop jokes, you're number two. 
have cats. Uh, I have two cats. I've got um, one. We're both cat ladies. Excellent. Uh, yep. I know. I, I never intended to have two, and here I am, a person with multiple <laughs> cats. Um, and I obviously there are uh, barriers to this if you have allergies or things like that. Mm-hmm. But I truly believe that like every sick person who can should have some sort of pet, uh, because especially I, I'm a big supporter of cats because they're incredibly low maintenance. Yes. Um, I think with my flares, if I had a dog, I would have a hard time getting up to take the dog out at like five in the morning. That's a really <laughs> important consideration. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you have to be realistic about like what you have the bandwidth to care for, but at the same time, uh, my cats are amazing. They know when I'm sad. They know when I'm sick. They will come lay on my stomach. Yeah, they on, show up. They always you know, like they do that. They happen to know where it hurts the most and they show up on I it. I know. They're angels. And mm-hmm. so I think that that has been great for my mental health. And it's a great reminder that even when your body is failing you, you can like take care of something else. Like I am yeah. keeping two cats alive. At least it's a cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe totally. not a kid, but a cat. I know. Uh, and they're going to get better medical care and food than we do. Because <laughs> that's what happens when you adopt an animal. <laughs> they're, oh, yeah. They're I'm the like, baby. I know. I always think it's kind of funny when people pour a bunch of money into a vet visit for an animal. And then, of course, like a few months ago, my cat swallowed a string and I'm oh. in the cab on the way to the emergency vet. Like, I will take out another credit card. Mm-hmm. I will do whatever I need to do to save this cat. So <laughs> I've been there. Um, I know so that is that is the the big thing, but I think additionally for me, uh, my third thing would just be my best friends. Um, mm. I am a very lucky person that I've had a lot of the same best friends since I was about ten years old. Wow! Um, and I have collected some more very close friends along the way, um, but a lot of them have known me since before my diagnosis. Or, you know, they met me right at the onset. So they've really been through it all with me. Mm. Um, And I think that the healthy people in your life aren't going to get it right 100% of the time. Um, And that's important to know. You're going to set yourself up for disappointment if you expect Mm. them to always know the right answer uh, and know the right thing to say. But I think it's important and vital to me to have people who you know, they stick around and you can tell that even if they're not always getting it right, they really care and they really, you know, they ask questions and they want to know more. And the biggest red flag for me in making friends as an adult is like, if you start to talk about your illness and the person like pulls away or changes the subject, I'm like, yeah, you're not a, you're not a ride or die. You're not sticking around. It's also a great way to know who really matters. Like talk about it and see who actually sticks around. Absolutely. And so I have been very lucky to have uh, a really core group of friends that even as I've moved across the country, um, you know, we have group chats, we have uh, FaceTime, and it is, they really keep me sane. Yeah, that's really lovely. Well, Sam, can you tell us where everyone tuning in right now can find Patients for Affordable Drugs and get involved? Yeah. So uh, you can find us, patientsforaffordabledrugs.org is our website. We are on Twitter and Instagram at at P4, number four, AD underscore, Mm -hmm. um, because there is a band in the UK that has at P4 AD and will not give it to us. (laughs) How dare they? (laughs) The bane of my existence as a digital director. Oh, boy. Um, And if you're interested in getting involved, uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sam, S-A-M-M-M, read, <laughs> R-E-I-D. 
because I have a very common name. <laughs> uh, I am happy to, uh, if you DM me, if you reach out to me, I am happy to kind of walk you through the process of getting involved with patients for affordable drugs and getting involved with advocacy. I've been lucky to bring some of my friends out here to advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is really just an amazing experience that helps you take some of the power back. Yeah. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Sam, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. I don't want this conversation to end. <laughs> and um, yeah, thank you. It's it's just such a pleasure to get your perspective and, and the perspective of someone who's out there actively making change. It's so exciting. So thank you so much for taking the time today. And I can't wait to talk again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.